Heavenly Father, we adore you. And we adore your Son, Christ Jesus. And we want that affection in the next 30, 40 minutes to be amplified, to be augmented, and to grow in an ever-increasing way, Father. We want our love, our trust, our desire to meet with you, to know you, to love you, to increase in our time together this morning. It's the whole reason we have the Bible, is so that we would know who you are. It's the whole reason we have churches, is so that in Christian fellowship we would understand in some way, shape, or form who you are. And so I'm praying right now, Father, that in this corporate worship service, you would come, you would be with us, and that we would know you and believe you and trust you and love you in ways that we may not have even thought was possible before. Father, I pray right now for the broken hearts in South Florida who are experiencing a Sunday without many that many families, without people who they expected were going to be with them this Sunday, and they're gone. I pray for every individual that has been impacted directly or indirectly by that tragedy in South Florida, and that your grace would come and meet those people where they are, Father. That you'd open their eyes to your hope, And that in the darkest and deepest possible suffering, they would experience a kind of hope that is real, authentic, and overwhelmingly good. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ, and we believe that you can provide it, Father. Amen. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he, God, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Last week, we began a series called The Ministry of Reconciliation, and we started to look at what it means to be reconciled to God. And Paul, last week, said that we were reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ, that the cross of Christ has brought us from a state of alienation, a state of hostility toward God, into right standing with the God of the universe, that that's what reconciliation has accomplished. But in concluding his treatment on what reconciliation is in this letter, Paul says something that is unnerving. He says something that 
could bring fear into our hearts if we understood it in a certain way. He says that the benefits of reconciliation, namely forgiveness of sins and an unending relationship with the one who made us, is contingent on something. He says that those benefits will be ours if we continue in the faith. So the implication in that text, if we're reading it, is that if we do not continue in the faith, then those benefits will not be ours. And so why is this unnerving? Well, if you're like me, this is unnerving because I can barely keep my schedule straight in a given week. I can barely wake up on time. I can barely eat healthy. How am I supposed to guarantee that every morning I wake up, I will trust and love Jesus? How am I supposed to do that? And so this contingency, this conditionality of reconciliation is, for me, when I reflect on it, if I read it a certain way, it's deeply disconcerting. The question's really simple. What does Paul mean when he says continuing in the faith? And how exactly do we as Christians accomplish that? This question is massive. And just to underscore the significance of it, let's talk about what's at stake. Make it very clear. In verse 22, Paul says that reconciliation, God's act of reconciliation in the world, means that God makes us holy and blameless and above reproach. This is complete forgiveness for every single sin you've ever, ever committed, past, present, and future. future. And it is a perfect righteousness that we did not earn. The Bible refers to this concept, this part of reconciliation as justification. Galatians 2, 15 through 16 says that we have been justified, which means we have been counted righteous. Though we are not intrinsically righteous, we have been counted righteous before God by faith and not of works. That's what Galatians 2, 15 through 16 says. But justification isn't the ultimate goal of reconciliation. Justification is not the end goal. Justification is merely a means. Being forgiven and being given an undeserved righteousness is not the main thing that God is after in the gospel going throughout the world. Colossians 1.22 says that God's ultimate purpose in reconciliation is to present you before him. Which means that God desires for us to be with him forever. To be embraced by the love of God for all eternity. That is the goal of reconciliation. That's the reason justification exists. And this is what is ultimately at stake. So if we do not meet the conditions of verse 23, if we do not continue in the faith, what this passage is saying is that we do not have forgiveness and we will not enter into his presence. There's no justification and there's no reconciliation. And so that means that the stakes for this verse could not be any higher or greater because they are eternal stakes. They are irreversible stakes. So let's, as a body, humbly and carefully, let's read through this verse 
123 one more time, and let's ask, what does Paul mean by continuing in the faith? How do we do this? Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There are two main ingredients in this verse. And so what I want to do is I want to canvas this verse at a high level, look at these ingredients, and then I want to see how they're defined by Paul and how they're connected. So the first ingredient here that we see is this abstract concept called faith. And the second ingredient we see here is another abstract concept, and it's called hope. So faith and hope. Hope. And rather than move chronologically through this letter from front to back or through this passage, I want to cover it at a high level and then drill down deeper. So I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance if this seems elementary or uh, if this seems really simple. This text has been fighting me all week long. And my hope and my prayer is that uh, we, we are able to understand this as a group and uh, I don't say anything that would cause you to stumble. So Paul is saying that there's something in the world called the gospel. And the gospel is what we already know it is, the good news of Jesus Christ. The, the, the work of Christ's redemption proclaimed. And it is the means by which God accomplishes his purposes of reconciliation in the world. The gospel is proclaimed. But that's not all he's saying. He's saying that this gospel is not just simply good news, at the center of this good news is hope, a profound hope. When the, when the gospel is proclaimed and people hear it and believe it, like Paul did, and he became a minister from this, um, when the gospel is proclaimed, the main thing that awakens a person's heart to faith is this reality of hope, this concept of hope, such that the listener's faith in the present sphere is connected to a future hope, a a future reality. The listener believes, and in that moment they are, when they believe, considered stable and steadfast. But if the listener were to stop believing, they would be shifting away from the hope of the gospel and they would be trusting in and hoping in something else. Does that make sense? And so the main point of this verse is that in the life of every Christian are these two realities, faith and hope. And they are deeply, deeply connected, like a a ship is connected to an anchor in the middle of a storm. And so faith is the ship, and the anchor is hope, and they are never, ever, ever meant to be separated. They're never, ever meant to be uprooted. Faith must always be rooted in and anchored in the hope of the gospel. So what are these two concepts? I want to use the Bible to define them. What are these two concepts, faith and hope, and what do they mean? How do we define them? How are they related in the life of a Christian? The definition of biblical faith is given in Hebrews 11. It says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen. Now what this says is that faith isn't, against the popular understanding of this, guesswork or a blind shot in the dark. According to this verse, faith is assurance. Faith is conviction. Popular notions of faith would say that faith is really in action. So what you got to do is you got to put your faith into something. You choose to believe what you want to believe. But the Bible doesn't view faith that way. Not biblical faith, at least. Faith in Scripture is a confident disposition of the soul around something, around a fact or a reality. And so you can have actions that, that arise from faith, for sure, but faith itself is not an action. It is a posture of dependency of the heart and mind around something. In the Bible, its most common expression of what that something is, is the relationship that you have with God. Passages like Philippians 1.29, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, uh, 1, and Ephesians 2 talk about faith not only being that, but being a gift from God, that God ultimately grants people the dependency, the posture of dependency on himself. They don't manufacture faith on their own. It is a gift of God. Now, that's what faith is in the Bible. What is hope? What is the hope of the gospel that Paul's talking about in Colossians 1.23? Or what is the hope that is elevated whenever the gospel is proclaimed? And what is the object of faith that when someone believes in the gospel that they're clinging to? What is the faith directed to? So when Paul says, don't shift from the hope of the gospel, what does he mean? What he means here, and we've talked about this before early on when we first started the church, he means the hope of glory, what we like to call in this building, risen hope. Colossians 1.5 refers to this as being the hope that is laid up in heaven. And Colossians 1.27 says it very clearly, very explicitly, it is the hope of glory. And what these verses mean is that the hope at the center of the gospel is the hope we have that one day there will be a resurrection from the dead for those who trust in Christ Jesus. And if that's not clear now in the text that we're reading, my prayer is that we will be clearer as we, as we go through the rest of the passages that we're looking at today. The reason why this is so important, the reason why this is so critical is that the function of the resurrection of Christ is to accomplish the final purpose of reconciliation. Paul in Romans 4 says, Christ was raised for our justification. Without Christ rising from the dead, there is no justification. Without his resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's why risen hope is such a massive and important concept and also a really great name for a church. So the resurrection of Christ is critical in understanding faith and hope. It is essential in understanding what faith is and what hope is because our faith is focused on ultimately the hope of glory. And the hope of glory is our own resurrection and the resurrection itself, the event of the resurrection is us stepping in over the threshold into eternity with God. And so it's very important that we understand what Paul is saying when he says continue in the faith because there is a deep, deep connection between that and the resurrection. 
And because of that, I want to, if you've got your Bibles, please turn them to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to look closer at the resurrection and the most robust treatment, I believe, in all the New Testament is probably in the book of 1 Corinthians. So turn to chapter 15. And I want to just spend some time soaking up what Paul has said in the past about the relationship between faith and hope through the lens of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ Jesus and our resurrection one day. Start with verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture's that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now hopefully, in just reading that text, you can see some parallels between Colossians 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has preached the gospel to the Corinthians. They have received it. He says they now stand in it and they are being saved by it. But again, he puts this if clause, this conditionality here. He says, if you hold fast to the word. The only way someone's going to be saved is if they hold fast to the word. Sounds very similar to Colossians 1's not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So what is the gospel that Paul's talking about in this message? What is he referring to here? He says, he uses three different events to describe it. Number one, Christ died for our sins. Number two, he was buried. He was really dead. And number three, he was raised on the third day. That's how Paul describes the gospel here. And the reason he does it like this is because he's engaging the Corinthians on the significance of the resurrection. There were some people in the Corinthian church who did not believe that there would be a resurrection from the dead. They were struggling with the concept of God resurrecting all people, especially the righteous, the people who had put their faith in Christ. And they've decoupled, the Corinthians, the hope of glory, the hope of the resurrection from the gospel. Everything the Corinthians who believe this hope in is in their current life. They have no future hope of glory. So listen to what Paul says in verse 13. Same chapter. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul is saying that if the resurrection of Christ isn't true, not only is my preaching to you in vain, not only is it in vain, but their faith, The very faith that the Corinthians have is in vain. It is worthless. Their faith has no value ultimately if Christ never rose from the dead. Listen to how he continues this line of thought in verse 17. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying that if the resurrection of Christ is false, if Jesus Christ really did not rise from the dead, then there is no such thing as saving faith. Your faith is futile. And in fact, you are still in bondage to your sin, which is huge. If you stop and consider this, what he's saying here is that the kind of faith we experience as believers is deeply connected with what happened on Easter. It is deeply connected about what happened with Christ Jesus when he rose from the dead three days after dying. In uh, Romans 4.25, we said this already. He says, we were raised, he, he was raised, Jesus Christ was raised for our justification. And if we're justified by faith, that means that our, justi- our, our justification and our faith that comes from that is deeply connected with what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. Paul's saying that if Christ wasn't risen from, death, from, from the dead, then death was not conquered and death still reigns. Nothing you believe, nothing you believe, if this isn't true, matters. That's how important the resurrection really is. And to press this, to really complicate this, which Paul loves to do, he says that Christians should be pitied as absolute fools if this life is all that there is. We of all people are most to be pitied. Why is that? Why would Christians, in Paul's view, be the most pitiful people in the world if the resurrection of the dead turns out to be false? If if Jesus actually did not rise from the dead and we're just doing this for some sort of moralistic, deistic reason. Isn't it good enough as Christians that we just be moral, loving people who obey the law, who contribute maybe positively to society, who maybe even live generously with our money. Isn't that enough, Paul? Wouldn't that be enough to be Christians like that? Paul says, absolutely not. The Christian life is meaningless without the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Why would that be? Why would that be? Because Christians are explicitly engineered and designed to take risks and sacrificially engage the pain and suffering of this world unlike any other group of people in this world. Christians are designed to lean into suffering. And the only way that kind of life makes any sense at all is if this life isn't the end. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the sufferings of this present time are enormous. And we saw that this week in South Florida. That's not a rare event. The sufferings of this present time are enormous. Paul saw it in his own life. But the hope of glory to be revealed to us is so much bigger. And the implication in Romans 8.18 is that we should, as Christians, endure those sufferings to get to that hope. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 17 says this, we do not, as Christians, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self 
is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul's saying that this world's suffering, as excruciating as it is, for some of us or all of us at certain times in our lives. It is for the Christian, all of it, every drop of it, a light momentary affliction when you compare it to the eternal weight of glory, which is, of course, the resurrection of the believer to be with God forever. Paul says that this eternal glory is beyond comparison, period. And to help amplify this, let's look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised, Christian, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Why are we blessed, Peter? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The point of this passage and the point of all these passages that we've been looking at is that the way that a Christian is called in this life to engage suffering in this world makes the resurrection a crucial and critical part of the Christian worldview. Christians expect suffering in this world. And in the middle of it, they rejoice. And that is strange. That is very strange. That is bizarre. <laughs> if we're critical about this worldview, and we should be, we should step outside and, and ask serious, critical questions about this. It should make us raise an eyebrow and ask, is this some kind of self-created delusion? It's a fair question. Is this some kind of self-created delusion? Are Christians who hope in the resurrection believing something just because it makes them feel better with the world that they have right now? No. Not at all. Peter's point in this text isn't that Christians seek out suffering or don't or ignore it like it doesn't really exist because they're going to heaven and everything's going to be okay one day, the Christian leans into the suffering of this world and brings with them the hope of the gospel. They share in Christ's sufferings in their efforts to alleviate the suffering from this world, and not just the suffering right now. Absolutely alleviate that suffering, not just the suffering right now, but to alleviate all suffering, especially, especially eternal suffering. Christians live in such a way that there is no chance, no chance at all they would ever trade the comfort that could be found in this life for the glory that will be revealed in the next. That's how Christians live, and this is a radical worldview. This is radical. This is the exact opposite of self-preservation, this is the exact opposite of comfort-seeking. And so for the Christian, their faith in the hope of the gospel is of the utmost importance. Indeed, you cannot really even be a Christian if you do not believe in 
and trust God's promise that one day he will come back for us, that one day we will be resurrected with Christ Jesus. This is not additive. The resurrection is not an extra thing to believe. It is at the very center of what it means to believe. So let's go back to Colossians 1.23 because we still have some major questions we need to answer. The resurrection at the end of the age is ours only if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, what does Paul mean by telling us to continue in the faith? How exactly are we supposed to do that, especially in a world like ours, filled to the brim with suffering and the constant desire to place our hopes in the comforts that are in this world, even most, more so in the West than in America where we live, which is really just a comfort factory. Comforts are manufactured outside these walls every day that are explicitly designed to take our faith and our hope and to put them in those things ultimately. I believe there are two ways that Christians, when they read a verse like this, should read it. I believe these are two essential ways, and I believe the Bible teaches both, and my hope is to show that, uh, and it teaches both simultaneously. First, Paul is simply stating a fact. That's what he's doing here. He's stating a fact. Every single human being who has been reconciled by God will continue in the faith. No questions. No exceptions. It will happen. If And if you do not continue in the faith, if we do not continue in the faith, it isn't that our reconciliation was broken. It isn't that reconciliation wasn't actually achieved. It simply means that we were never reconciled to begin with. If you remember Jesus' parable of the sower in Matthew 13, in that parable, the rocky ground prevents the plant our faith from taking root. It prevents faith from continuing. Jesus says this in Matthew 13, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, he falls away. And the word for falls away here in the Greek, it's skandalizo. It means to stumble or to cause to sin. It's the exact opposite of being stable. It's the exact opposite of being steadfast. But those who continue in the faith are like the good soil, the plant that always takes root. It always grows. It always bears fruit. And the reality of the faith in that good soil is authenticated and proven out by them continuing in the faith. Now, that's one of the ways that we should look at Colossians 1.23. God will always carry those who are his to the end without fail. The second way we should look at this text is that it actually is a real condition for the believer. Paul doesn't use the word if by accident here. There's a real Greek word. It's if. 
A, and it, and it means if here. He's pleading with the Colossians, continue in the faith. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of this condition. There's a real contingency here. It does not mean that he doubts that the Colossians are going to actually be resurrected on the final day or that they're actually reconciled. It doesn't mean that the reconciliation that happens on the cross for believers can ever be re- reversed. The conditionality that exists in Colossians 1.23 and throughout the entire Bible is God's very means of authenticating true faith. For example, 2 Peter 1, after Peter says clearly that the recipients of his letter have, re- have obtained a faith of equal standing with himself. Their faith is of the same substance and nature as Peter's. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, and he means qualities of character that arise from, that are produced from faith, if these are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That entrance is the resurrection. Peter is saying, Christians, confirm your calling. Confirm your election. Confirm that God has actually reconciled you. How do we do that? Be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord. And so we know the Lord. We know Christ Jesus through faith. Peter is saying here, continue in the faith. And by Peter telling professing Christians this, he knows there's going to be two responses from a professing Christian. There are only two responses to this. Reconciled people among those professing Christians will do everything they can to confirm their calling and election. They will continue in the faith. But those who are not reconciled, those who are professing Christians but maybe do not believe, they will hear this passage and they will ignore it. They won't believe it ultimately and they won't obey it. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 warns in similar fashion. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
I hope you feel the weight of this. The writer intends for us to read this and feel the weight of this. The author of Hebrews is very serious about the condition for preserving. But listen to what he says to his readers at the end of this chapter. Listen to what he's saying to us right now. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The author of Hebrews is saying, we are not those who shrink back. We're not those who shrink back. We have faith. And so how do I know that? How do we individually know that we have faith? Like Colossians 1.23 says we need to continue into. How do I know tomorrow morning when I wake up that I will still trust and love Jesus Christ? Jesus himself tells us in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, you know the Spirit of truth, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. When saying this, Jesus is hours away from his crucifixion. He is alone with his disciples and they are afraid and confused He has been telling them that he is going to go away. And he will be gone. He will not be with them anymore. And what this means is that he's going to die. And everything that they've assumed about the last three years is about to change forever. But Jesus says to them here, I will not leave you as orphans. I won't leave you alone. I'm going to come back for you. I'll come back for you. And because I live, you also will live. This is one of the greatest promises ever made in human history. Jesus is promising to give them the Holy Spirit of the living God. And the spirit who will dwell inside of them will preserve them. He will most certainly keep them. He will cause them to continue in the faith every day of their life. And he will be with them for every second of it. Every second of the believer's life, every second of it, every moment of it, is a second spent with the spirit of the living God inside of the believer providing them the grace, the very grace they need to continue in the faith, even in the middle of suffering. This doesn't mean that Christians are robots. This doesn't mean that Christians are passive. This doesn't mean that Christians can just coast on autopilot. Christians never coast. If you're seeing somebody coasting, they may not be a Christian. Christians don't coast. They are persevering. Christians conquer. It says they fight the good fight of faith. Those are None of those are passive words. Christians don't coast. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is Paul giving a definition for why he is who he is. And God's grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I worked my butt off harder than any of them. But when I reflected on it, I recognized it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. I worked harder every day of my life. But it was not me, ultimately. It was a powerful grace coming from my God. Paul was constantly pursuing his faith in Christ. He was never a passive Christian. But at the end of the day, God's grace was what governed and empowered his pursuit of faith. (laughs) And why was that? Because the Holy Spirit strengthened and secured Paul's faith. For the believer, our faith is guaranteed every day because the Spirit has been given to us as a seal. We know we are His because He has purchased us completely. Look at Ephesians 1. It says, In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the guarantee of our inheritance, the guarantee until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Through Jesus' cross and through Jesus' resurrection, he guaranteed your inheritance. He guaranteed it. He secured your faith and he secured your hope. He secured every single thing necessary for you to be able to continue stable and steadfast for you to never ever shift from the hope of the gospel and whether you believe right now in your chair or whether you do not i want you to know the reason you're in this room right now today the reason you are here by god's sovereign grace is that you would hear and believe this you would hear this message and believe it we'll be taking communion in a moment And communion is the celebration and the proclamation that when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, he did everything necessary for us to continue in the faith. When we embrace communion, we are embracing elements that represent who he was when he died. And we are publicly stating Christ did it all. He did it all. By his grace alone that we are saved. There are two kinds of people in this room. There are two kinds of people in this world two categories that people slot into. There are people who do believe, but they, if they were to admit it, would say, sometimes I struggle with believing. Sometimes I struggle with faith. I I hope in the glory of God. I, I do hope in the glory of God, but sometimes it is so hard, and I feel like I might wake up one day and just not believe anymore. The other category of people are people who don't believe at all, and they may have a thousand reasons, some of which are very good for not believing, at least in their eyes. Maybe they look at the gospel and they see it as unconvincing or untrue or boring, and it just doesn't seem to have any weight to them, and they just can't believe. 
Those are the only two kinds of people that exist in this world. And here's the thing, the solution, the solution, the solution for both of them is the exact same thing. If there is any flicker of desire, any spark in you to desire to believe in this, you need to know that we do not believe by manufacturing faith. We do not believe by trying harder. We do not believe by mustering up a false sense of security and hope that one day it feels like it's true. We believe by going to Jesus Christ and by pleading with him like the Father in Mark 9, 24, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but help me. Help me. I want to believe. I want this hope to be real to me. I want this hope to be mine. Help me overcome every ounce of unbelief in my soul so that it might be said of me one day, that man continued in the faith. He remained stable and steadfast. He never shifted from the hope of the gospel because his eyes were always, every day of his life, locked onto his king. And his king kept him even to the very end. Jude 24 says this exact thing to us in this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these two realities of faith and hope are so critical, so essential. They are not secondary. They are not additive. They are at the center of what it means to be human in this world. And so, Father, I pray right now that as we sing and worship, as we take part in communion, and even as we reflect on this passage throughout the remainder of today and this week, in the weeks to come, Father, that you would give us a kind of confident understanding in the great realities and truths that are here, Father. That you would take faith and press it into our souls so that we come to love you and trust you in ways that we never even imagined were possible. And that, Father, our faith would be linked up with the future glory of being united with you and your son one day. Father, that our faith would manifest itself in a profound hope. Not just us wishing that it would be something different in the future, but us knowing that you have provided us an entrance into your kingdom, that you've given us the ability, Father, to stand before you through reconciling us by forgiving us of all of our sins and imputing to us the perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus, Father. We are before your throne in that moment. 
And our job in this life is to believe it and to proclaim it, to know it and to show it in both word and deed. And so as we continue through the rest of this book, Father, and through the rest of this, these verses on the ministry of reconciliation, I pray that we would understand we have been reconciled. We will continue in the faith because of what was accomplished on the cross. We give you all the glory, Father. Be exalted in this place in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.